Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple, in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. zoologist and wildlife filmmaker. And I'm Becca, I'm a PhD student in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. Welcome to the first of three shorter than usual holiday specials for Darwin's Black Book. They are going to be shorter than the normal 45 minutes slash hour, but they're going to be on the lead up to Christmas Day over the Christmas period just to keep you occupied when you're wrapping presents, eating chocolate, all of the above. It's our gift to you. Exactly. You oh, that was cheesy. That was great. <laughs> so, so Becca, what have we got lined up for the season? So part one is this episode right here that you're listening to. You found it. Well done. Uh, this is Merry Critters, where we're going to be talking about the evolution and adaptations of animals that we associate with Christmas. And then we'll be moving on to part two, which we've named Blessed Botanicals because alliteration had to happen um, where we're going to be looking at the evolution adaptations of festive plants so holly mistletoe cinnamon which is great because i do animals and you do animals genetics genetics well it's perfect isn't it i yeah. just said it at the beginning of, the <laughs> of animals <laughs> and anyway this will be followed by part three which is our multicultural Christmas, where we're going to be looking at species associated with the festive season outside of the typical Western Christmas, which should be really interesting. So Tom, kick us off with part one, Merry Critters. Bear in mind I didn't choose the name, but here we go. (laughs) So last night I did a survey uh, of sample size two, so it's exceptionally rigorous and well-tested. That does not count as a legitimate sample (laughs) in science. Just throwing that out there. It's fine. It's fine. I asked the question to Becca and her flatmate, actually, of when you think of an animal at Christmas, what is the first animal you think of? Becca, you said turkey Mm -hmm. and then and then polar bear. And I don't really Christmas polar bear. Sure. Yeah, they live in in snow and they're white. Yep. Uh, (laughs) And then penguins, which is another one, which is interesting because wrong side of the globe. Not really North Pole, but. Again, Shorks, no, yep. Christmas penguin. Yeah, Christmas penguin. Um, but then your flatmate went off on one, and she went with Christmas polar bear again, then Christmas penguin again. I, I never thought of that, but sure. Then the Christmas hedgehog, the Christmas deer, the Christmas fox, <laughs> to the extent she started naming various British animals with the word Christmas at the beginning. So there you go, one Christmas whale coming up. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I think Christmas porpoise, absolutely thing. Make it a thing. So what did you actually choose to talk about today then? The Christmas porpoise? Yeah, none of them. I chose chose the robin, actually. <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> yes. So the European robin appears on most popular culture things around this season. Uh, the European robin, or Erythicus uh, rubicula, 
for anyone who wants to know the Latin. If you're not aware of these birds, the adults are small, brown, tawny, olive coloured uh, plumage with a red breast for both male and female, that's what makes them famous, lined with a bluish grey, white belly, brown legs, and the juveniles just look like fluffier, rounder versions, which are just brown. Oh, I love them, they're so they cute, are very inquisitive. So just, oh, the fluff. So yeah, these robins, it's an interesting one to talk about at Christmas because they are not specifically adapted for cold conditions or icy extremes, yet they are on the fr front of Christmas everything, to be honest. And it seems that along with uh, three wise men, Santa Claus, exactly four sprouts and a reindeer, the robin is the perfect personification of modern day Christmas. And yet it gets more odd. These animals are visible all year round across the UK with 6.7 million breeding territories. And these small 20 gram small fluffy gardener's friends have just a tiny streak for extreme violence. <laughs> so the background, why are they associated with Christmas? Well, firstly, they are not one of the birds in the UK to actually migrate to foreign warmer climes when winter sets in, as opposed to literally most of the other UK birds. The black caps go to South Spain and Morocco. The osprey goes to West Africa. Gambia and Senegal often see Scottish ospreys on their Christmas holidays. If you want to know more about that, you should definitely check out our episode on animal migrations. The origin of robins at Christmas, though, are actually on Christmas cards. Christmas cards have been sent since the 17th century, but they really took off way insert bird pun here, when <laughs> Queen Victoria sent the first official Christmas cards in the 1840s. Postmen wore red, which was the colour of Great Britain on the flag, and they were nicknamed red, uh, Robin Redbreasts. And then as soon as one enterprising artist started illustrating Christmas cards with the Robin postbird delivering letters, well, the rest is history. They're also, along with the blackbird, one of the only birds to keep calling in winter as they move from summer to winter territories. So these territories for the robins, just a little bit of their natural history. The summer or breeding territory is controlled by a pair of which there are 6.7 million of them in the UK, about half a hectare in size. In winter, they are taking up these individual territories. That's where the fights start to happen. Held by a single individual, half, uh, half again of, of the paired territory at only uh, a quarter of a hectare. These territories are fluid, constantly shifting and changing as time progresses, and alliances are made and battles are won. In sparse pine forest, you can get probably about 10 pairs per kilometre squared, but in thick oak woodland of southern England, you can get up to 300 pairs per kilometre squared. A new season may see the arrival of a new individual, which can take up residence in a tiny gap between two other territories. At the end of the season, it may well be as large as the other territories, as they've battled and fought their way through the season. If you see any in your garden, that garden has quite clearly defined boundaries and is actually quite a good way for the robins who distinguish their territories. Trees, fences, bushes are all very good ways to make borders. And also I'm going to go with kind of political landscape on this one. They are really fascinating to watch. I dare you to watch them for just, just a few a few minutes, a few hours if you've got the time. But I watched them through summer while writing my thesis at home and Game of Thrones, eat your heart out, the political <laughs> rivalries, alliances being made and fought were quite simply incredible to watch. But the territory, this is kind of where the robin uh, red breast, the, the red comes into it. They will be brighter and healthier in, in larger males uh, because these are only for territorial disputes. These are not for getting the ladies, as one might expect. Uh, and yeah, again, you see mainly 
fights appearing in autumn or the start of winter as food gets more scarce. The red triggers a defence pathway cascade, uh, in scientific terms, um, basically just meaning it they cause a fight. Seeing red in or near a territory will just cause a fight bet between two of them. But first, you've got to commit to fluffing yourself up and singing as loud as you possibly can at your opponent. In a bar, if you ever feel like scaring someone off, sure, why why not try that? They will probably leave. Uh, st <laughs> step two... This is if... not very festive. <laughs> oh, it's great. Step two... It's a holiday for special. The for the festive step in your bar kind of tour, um, <laughs> fight them. Uh, that's your festive tip from from the Robin. Although maybe don't take to the next step because the fights in this case are now 10% lethal. No quarter is given. Uh, they kind of circle around each other in these semi-terrestrial dogfights and the aim is to get around to the back of the opponent and, and peck the nape of the neck, attempting to break it. Oh my gosh. Yay Christmas! How are these animals so Okay. <laughs> yeah, they're really cute, aren't they? Still, still cute, Becca? Can please continue? <laughs> Other side at the end. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they, they really go for anything. If you put a red sock out, they'll attack that. Uh, they'll attack dead robins. They'll fight dunnocks, red starts, chats and wheaties for food. Fake robins. A, an experiment was done in which a single male actually tore the head off a fake robin in an experiment. And, um, well, it was deter uh, determining its, its territoriality. And uh, then it ripped all the red fluff off the fake robin as okay, well. Okay, okay, that's enough um, fighting, please. <laughs> This it was a fake. holiday special. <laughs> it was fake. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, violence aside, I'll, I'll move on swiftly. They don't fear humans and will eat worms next to gardeners. They are actually the perfect garden uh, bird to have. They increase biodiversity, they are seed dispersers, pest removers, and provide food to a number of predatory birds that now reside in the UK once again. No garden is complete without one to increase its biodiversity. They nest in climbing plants and bank sites and piles of logs and if you want to provide a box or a home for them you can provide a, a nesting box with an open side in a hidden location quite low to the ground or if no bird box well you can hang a pair of old boots or a pot or a basket and they will quite happily make their home in there. The nest is solely built by the female. The male provides almost half of the female's food when she's actually brooding her eggs though to kind of make up for the female doing all of the work at this point. Um, uh, yes, it's a small cup of soft moss, feathers and leaves. Really quite sweet and very interesting to look at after, of course, all the young have fledged. Don't go near them when they're, they're actually nesting. They eat seeds, peanuts, chopped small, fruit and mealworms if you want to provide any extra food. And this extra food can really go a long way as a uh, clutch for the robin uh, can be made up of six eggs and cumulatively can take up 90% uh, of the female's weight, which is quite large. But please don't approach them yet when they're building a nest or incubating as they may abandon their young. But that's in spring. That's coming up. But I will leave you on this festive fighting Robin <laughs> uh, section with a final Robin themed story about where the origin of the Robin at winter might come from. So dating back to Celtic Britain, you had two kings. You had the Holly King of Winter, which was signified as a wren, and the Oak King of Summer, signified as a Robin. And these were constantly at odds, vying to take the throne of seasons. 
the Holly King of Winter was overthrown uh, on the winter solstice and the, in the height of winter itself by the Oak King of Summer, by the Robin. And then from that point it will just get warmer and warmer and warmer as it moves, the seasons move into summer. However, at the height of summer, the Holly King of Winter will get his revenge by taking back the throne from summer. Uh, and from then on it will just get colder and colder as, as the seasons progress into winter. And therefore that explains why you see more Robins in the winter, as they have had their throne taken from them, as they're vying to get it back from the, uh, from the King of Winter. And this supposedly happens every year? Every year. It, it marks the, the seasons for the, for the ancient Celtic cultures, which I thought was really quite, really quite sweet. That's an interesting story. Also fighting. Yes. Yes. So That's anyway, <laughs> not where I expected this one to go. Not going to lie, but I think they did kind of come back around to being cute again. About Happy the, um, holidays! Small cup of soft moss feathers and leaves to make up their nests is quite sweet. So everything else is. Yeah, I yeah. learned. I learned. <laughs> anyway. Right, Becca, what have you got for me? What What is your festive, uh, what's your festive, fantastic animal that you're going to provide to me today? So I've actually come up with two shorter pieces on two species that I associate with Christmas. The second one I'm going to talk about is the reindeer because, oh my gosh, when I was uh, researching this episode, I learned so much cool stuff about reindeers and they are really underrated. But before that, I'm going to come and talk to you a bit about the common cold. I'm sorry, wait. So when we said uh, festive and cute and cuddly and the cold... Reindeers. We'll, we'll get to that in reindeers. <laughs> right now, we're going to talk about the common cold. Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, as you probably know, the common cold is especially common in winter, and the symptoms include a runny nose, sore throat, headaches, muscle aches, and you feel shivery, and then coughs and sneezing. The common cold is a virus, and it's the most frequent infectious disease in humans, especially in winter. But importantly, it is a virus. It cannot be cured but it goes away in about two weeks on its own. But you can treat the symptoms with things like paracetamol or cough drops. But don't use antibiotics, just throwing that in there. It doesn't touch the virus, but it can still lead to antibiotic resistance of the bacteria that you may already have around your body. Which we'll get to probably in, a, in an episode yes. soon. Um, so anyway, why is this affliction so common? Why is it the common cold? And why in winter? Why at Christmas? So many questions. Exactly. So you may know normally that when you get infected with a microorganism that's bad for you, so a pathogen, your immune system builds up a natural response to stop you from getting it a second time. If it comes at you again, you will be ready. You might not even get symptoms. Your body will just kill it immediately. However, with the common cold, there are over 200 strains. So that's 200 different types of the common cold. I already hate it. <laughs> so you you probably think if you think back to the cold you've had in your life every single one of them was actually a slightly different um organism hence we getting well we keep getting reinfected because they're different it's all slightly different time. but it all comes under the umbrella term the common cold and the symptoms are generally the same but why is it around so much well it's evolved to spread really easily in really common ways such as through the air when you're in close contact with someone who's infected or indirectly through contact with objects in the environment that an infected person might have coughed on or touched or something this advice also goes for recent events uh, <laughs> which we probably won't mention wash your hands <laughs> merry christmas the common cold is not a type of coronavirus it's actually a type of rhinovirus usually but sometimes it's different types i won't go into that now anyway it can also increase your risk when you go into childcare facilities or if you're not sleeping very well or if you're under a lot of stress which are all pretty common things 
and it's evolved to take advantage of humans doing those things a lot. But why, why winter? Why winter? Do you know why winter? I don't know, no. Um, no. take a guess? Uh, <laughs> why winter? Uh, because, because it's either living up to its name, which we gave it, and, and it's cold. This feels like a circular argument. I'm, I'm going to stop guessing now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, you're not completely wrong. So, when you're talking about the actual cold virus itself, the transmission is faster in the cold due to the way the viral particles are made up. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> you were getting totally. that. Yeah. Um, so basically the outside of the virus is made from a lipid coating. So lipid is just fat, basically. And lower temperatures makes this coating really tough and therefore more resilient to the environment. Huh. So that's one of the ways. That's, that's quite cool. Another way is about the human host itself. So you, if you catch a cold. Your immune response. I feel very victimised immediately. <laughs> Me. Okay, yeah, well, I'm just going to get cold. Yep. Perhaps this is one of the most clear-cut explanations for why winter brings up the cold a lot. It's literally being cold slows down the efficiency of your immune system. That simple. So I was right when I mentioned uh, I mentioned it was li living up to its name. As the the um, we named for yeah, that okay, yeah. reason. Yeah, um, that's, that's right, that's right. It's <laughs> about human behaviour. So when it's cold, you tend to not go outside, you hide from the cold. So you're inside more, you're in an unventilated place as opposed to being outdoors. And you're with other people who may be infected. And the final thing is the air is drier when it's cold. So when you sneeze or cough, the infected droplets can hang around longer. So Christmas is a time in which you spend all your time indoors sneezing on each other uh, <laughs> in dry air. Fantastic. And it's something humans have been doing for quite a long time. What, sneezing on each other or? Well yes and um, you know going inside in... <laughs> going inside. Going inside in unventilated areas when it's cold so the virus has simply evolved to take advantage of that we've created a niche for it. So it really has adapted with our species that's quite cool and of course other species can get colds as yes. well. Yes and I mean yes. those are only a few of the reasons but they're the most common ones all, they all play a factor in why the cold is so common especially in winter. Amazing right can we <laughs> retrack from the violence, from the cold, onto yes. something, something cuddly, please, oh, something cuddly. Reindeer, right, reindeer are absolutely incredible. It was, Tom, it was so tempting not to just keep telling you things I was reading about them <laughs> as I was researching this because, okay, so basically, reindeer live in very cold regions like Alaska and Scandinavia, and they can also be found in Scotland following a reintroduction in the Cairngorms, which I thought was pretty cool, I didn't okay, know that. Okay, we are totally going on holiday We We need to do that. Yep. So probably the most defining feature of the reindeer are their antlers. So reindeer antlers are some of the largest of any deer species and unusually they're present on both the males and females. And this is unique among deer. So as usual the males use them for battle but for the female reindeer it's to defend their food and establish dominance among the other females. Also they do a really cool thing I've noticed. I think moose do it as well. In the winter when the ground is frozen they use their antlers to try and get through frost to the grass below. Ah, oh, that actually links to something I was going to say in a moment. Hold that thought, listeners. <laughs> um, so, but growing and shedding antlers like this is energetically really expensive. So when you have the females in a poor habitat, so not much food, antlerless females dominate. This means that they can prioritise their energy towards more important things like reproduction, caring for their young and generating internal heat. Staying oh. alive. Staying alive, Staying yes. alive. So when things like dominance become less important, they, they will stop growing their antlers so they can save their energy. So what else helps them stay warm enough? So they have specially adapted fur. There are two layers of fur. 
consisting of an ultra fine and dense underfur and a really shaggy outer layer that you kind of naturally associate with the, the reindeer. And this outer layer, the hairs are hollow and they provide insulation, just like polar bears. And reindeer even have fur on the bottom of their hooves. Okay, that freaks me out. That freaks me out <laughs> because I'm now imagining people with fur, fur, like hair on the soles of their feet. That's so people? weird. Like reindeer. I know, but what of people with whole hair on the soles of their feet? This is a future human evolution thing that you're... That's like hobbits, but weird. <laughs> anyway, it gives them really I'm good uncomfortable. on the eyes. <laughs> their hooves are really broad as well. And this makes some useful paddles for swimming. Yes, reindeer can swim. With their, their creepy, creepy, hairy feet. <laughs> the hooves are also useful for something that they do called cratering, which is digging through the snow to find food beneath. And I guess that's what you're referring to when you said they sometimes use their antlers to do this. That's quite as cool. Well. So that's cratering. This is my favorite thing. So living where they live, there's often really poor lighting for the long dark winters of the Arctic. And because of this, Reindeer have UV vision. Sorry, what? So, <laughs> UV light has a really short wavelength and it's so short that we can't pick it up as humans. Humans can't see it. So reindeer can see things that we can't see. And if you want to read more about this in detail, uh, there was a paper in 2011 by Hogg et al in the Journal of Experimental Biology. So reindeer can see UV and, you know, maybe that's why Santa wanted them on his sleigh at night. I mean, they can't fly, but at least their UV vision would be useful. That's nuts. So what benefit does UV vision give them? So because the, there are long dark winters in the Arctic, they need to pick up as much light as possible. And UV is light, it's just light that we can't see. So if they have adapted to pick it up, they can just see more when it's darker. Navigating better through forests, avoiding predators better. Everything you need sight for. That's incredible. But That's amazing. Anyway, as well as reindeer being there's more. very, there's more. Oh, that's so good. Their oh. nose has an internal heat exchange system. Red nose. <laughs> this yes, red nose. Not red nose. Damn. Every breath is warmed on its way to the lungs and is cooled as it's exhaled, so the water vapor is condensed before it can be puffed into the air. And humans have something similar to this in terms of the breathing in, which is called our nasal cavity. So it stops your lungs from getting too cold when the air is really cold outside. And finally, this is also Ooh. awesome. When reindeers walk, the tendons in their foot joints click. And this sound helps herds stay together in the low visibility. And it might even play a role in enforcing social hierarchy. So when they're walking around, they can hear the clicking of other reindeers and they know they're yeah, in their herd. Okay, right. So I'm just gonna, that was a huge amount of info about <laughs> reindeer that has been thrown at my face, which I didn't actually know about. So they can see in wavelengths, which we can't. Mm -hmm. Supervision. They can, they, well, they have heat exchange systems through their nose. Yes. They... Hairy feet. Have hair... <laughs> hairy feet, and they can swim with these hairy feet. They have yes. excellent phone which to keep warm, and also they, they talk to each other through their tendons, in their, in their clicking feet. I don't know if they communicate with that, but it's a way that they can tell the herd can stay together. Stay together. Yes. There's a communication and that's terrifying. So cool. Reindeer might not be able to fly, but I think that's pretty magical. And they have some superpowers of yeah. their own right there, which they... But through evolution and natural selection instead of typical magic. Supernatural oh, magic. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. So we've had, yeah, the violent robins, the weird common cold, and the fin well, absolutely fantastic reindeer as well. And that's it for this episode. 
But for one thing, just before we wanted to go, Becca, I've got a really tiny quiz for you. A Christmas-themed animal quiz. Oh, excellent. And, yeah, I, I mean, it's a little it's a little odd, but we're going to go with it. It's called a Where Should the Santa Hat Go on the Animal? Okay. <laughs> right. <Your> face <laughs> looks horrified. Well, okay, so I was thinking, because normally you see, uh, well, we've put a Santa hat on the Darwin for the for our, yes. our cover, and I don't know, I've seen, I can assume you have cats. Do you put a Santa hat on your cat occasionally? I, I tried, she didn't like it. She didn't, but she has a head in which to put on. She tolerated the uh, reindeer antlers better. Exactly, and from having another discussion with where do you put <laughs> the tie on the giraffe. Well, that's obvious. It goes at the bottom of the neck, because humans don't wear ties at the top of their necks, do they? Okay, I'm going to leave this for a debate for later, because <laughs> this could get <laughs> this could get intense. Anyway, so my thinking was, where should the Santa hat go on the animal? And we're going to start off with an easy one. Whale. Where would you put a Santa hat on a whale? Well, you know where its eyes are? Yeah. Above that? On the, when it starts to get flat? So, well, yeah, but that's... This what, a blue whale front, we're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. In front or behind of the, of the nasal passage? Oh, the blowhole. I didn't think about that. In front of the blowhole. In front of the blowhole. In between hole. the eyes and the blowhole. So, so okay. That's odd, but sure. Do you sure. know what a blue whale's skull looks like? I don't think I've seen one before. It's really long. It's like, it's mainly... Mm. See, it's mainly just... Face. That's a really bad way of we are scientists. Whales are mainly Promise, we do science. <laughs> okay, so we're going to say in front of... Or am I anthropomorphizing it? Am I trying to make it too human? Don't make it human. Where would a whale want <laughs> his Santa hat? I think two tiny ones on each, on each fin. <laughs> if I were on a each whale. pectoral fin. Just a tiny little hat. I think it should go just in front of the blowhole. Okay, in front of the, in front of the blowhole don't it is. Just, yeah. Okay, uh, next question. Uh... Well, you study nematodes, which are I tiny do. microscopic worms. Where would they? <gasps> where would they wear a tiny Santa hat? Okay, well they do. This is an interesting one. They do have heads and mouths, but they're not kind of what you you would expect. They're basically a line. Please don't explain the mouths, because last time you did this, it was terrifying. <laughs> they have really interesting mouth morphology. Yep. So basically, the nematodes that um, that I work with, if you look at the development of them, they actually the way you see them wiggling around, they're actually wiggling around on their side. So I would actually put the Santa hat on its head region, end, yeah, but on the side. And they wriggle around on the side because that's where the grip is, so they can just move around better. Equally terrifying. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm loving where we're going with this. Right, okay. Uh, two more. Go on. Uh, jellyfish. Well, just Very Christmassy. Right? Just on top of the bell. Oh, where else? Where else could you well, literally of... put a Santa hat on a jellyfish? I mean, no, you have enough. No, you've got me there. Honestly, you've got me there. And finally, starfish. <gasps> oh gosh, they're radial. Yeah, radial symmetry. You see, when I was thinking about this, I they have a tiny little uh, kind of siphon where they pump water in and out, called the madreporite, which is just off the side. Off, off the very, very middle, um, which would be quite cute because every time it kind of exhales water, this little hat would kind of just float up and then sit back down. It'd be really <laughs> cute, but I don't want to put it in the middle of, of all the arms because that's actually where their anus is, oh. which, which is a bit grim. Well, what about on top? That, that, yeah, exactly there. That, so that, the that. other is the mouth underneath. Yep. And the anus on top. Yep. Okay, this is supposed to problem. <laughs> 
Ooh, how about on like one at the end of every foot? You know what? Let's go with that. I don't think that's a better <laughs> answer than that. So that is all we've got for you on this first part of the seasonal episodes of Darwin's Black Book. As usual, you can find us on Twitter at Darwin Black Book or use the hashtag DBB. You can find us on Spotify, hopefully on Apple Podcasts and Google's podcast player as well. If you did like this, please do let us know. Tweet at us, leave a review, only if it's nice. Kind of half joking. And I'd like to give a massive thank you to the British Ecological Society for funding the startup of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. And thank you to my mate Ed, who designed the Darwin Head logo. If you want to find out more about my housemate, who is the creator of the previously mentioned Christmas Hedgehog, she's also a really awesome marine biologist. You can find her on Twitter at cat underscore Clayton one. And finally, hello to the University of Exeter Bioscience student community. Now we are on your community mural. Happy holidays, guys. And thanks to Jess and Sarika for including us. But thank you all so much for listening. Merry Christmas to all and to all good night. Happy holidays.